Um, yeah, I think that's a really great question. Um, and when I talk about abolition, um, particularly in, in non-academic or activist settings, I never use the word abolition. I always think about, okay, so how can we think about alternatives to the, to the criminal justice system, which can provide people with the resources which will make them far less likely to come into contact with the police and prison system. It's a bit more wordy, um, but I think it's necessary, right? And so, um, I, and, and, and I guess, yeah, and I guess I, I've, I've done this when I've, you know, had to write articles for things like The Guardian, right? I wouldn't use the word abolition. I was like, I might introduce the idea of defunding, but I would never say abolition, right? And I, I would just basically, I would describe abolition without saying abolition, if that makes sense. Um, and I think I find that to be a useful way of kind of bring people in. And it's certainly something I do if, you know, if I run a, a workshop in a, an further education college or very often with parents um, who are concerned about their young people um, uh, or, you know, stuff I do, you know, other, other educational workshops I do um, outside of academic or activist settings. Um, and so, yeah, again, that's something we can talk about. And I'm going to be really, really clear on these policy differences between abolitionist and non-abolitionist reforms today as well, um, which um, yeah, hopefully will be useful as well. Any other um, questions from last week before I get into um, my own little reflections from, not last week, sorry, Wednesday, um, before I get into my own few reflections, I'm just getting them up now because I've been making a few notes. No? Can't see any other hands. Okay, so I'm just going to talk. So, um, so I was thinking a little bit about, obviously, um, uh, I was using policing as a kind of case study or the police and prison system as a case study for thinking through institutional racism. Um, and then I, you know, we thought about a couple of other examples um, of other institutions. And I think, thinking back, I think that while um, the police and prison system and border system are, are, are institutions which are quite specifically exist to enforce um, a specific type of power. I think we can potentially be more nuanced with other kinds of institutions. And I'm thinking through institutions like, um, uh, I'm thinking about my friends who are teachers, for instance, um, who while there is significant evidence that the education system is institutionally racist, I wouldn't necessarily argue for a defunding of our education system or encourage people to not become teachers, right? And because education provides a, education provides a different kind of um, power, a different type of opportunity, and there's certainly more autonomy to do that. And I think similarly, when we think about NGOs as well, while um, um, NGOs similarly can reproduce racism, but there is space there for, to do good work in NGOs in the same way there's important space to do good work in you know, being a teacher or maybe even an academic at university occasionally, right, these types of things. I think what's crucial is that I don't think it's these institutions that are going to liberate us. I don't think it's these institutions that are going to get us free, for want of a better word. And, and even if we think about um, our reading for this week, um, uh, Shanice works at uh, an NGO, right, that provides services for survivors of domestic violence and gender-based violence. Um, Avia, the other author, right, works at a university. And both, so both of these institutions are places where they're able to do progressive, critical, maybe even radical work. But both of them also realise that it's not these institutions that are going to get us free. Right? So an NGO, um, oh, no, sir, are you able to put your thing on mute? Oh, no, I have the power to mute you. Wow. Okay. Um, <laughs> um, so, um, uh, what was I saying? Oh, yes. Yeah, so, and I think this is really crucial because we, it's important not to throw the baby out with the bathwater. 
in our criticism of these institutions. Um, and I don't think I don't think non-engagement with all institutions simply because they're institutionally racist is necessarily um, the most useful thing to do. But I think being aware of the, the limitations of organisations like NGOs, as well as um, other sections of the public sector, I think it's also really um, important for us to appreciate how important it is us for, to work beyond and outside of these kinds of organisations. Um, so if we take Shanice, for instance, she works at an NGO that provides services for survivors of domestic violence, but she knows that that NGO isn't what's going to end violence against women. Right. It's only going to provide support um, and help for people who've, who are survivors of this kind of gender-based violence, but it's not going to end that violence. It, we need something else, right? We need a, a movement, a grassroots political movement to end violence against women, right? But but we can have both of those things at the same time, right? It doesn't mean doesn't mean it doesn't mean that we shouldn't have support for people survivors of domestic violence simply because it's not going to end gender-based violence, right? We can we need to have both of those things. Does that kind of make sense? Um, and I think we can probably think through similar examples when it comes to yeah, people becoming teachers in our school system. There are a whole litany of problems with our school system. It's not going to free us, but we should have, you know, we want our children to be literate. Um, uh, what, even if there are very uh, a myriad of flaws with the how, how children are disciplined or the curriculum that they're taught and, and all these types of things. Ahino, is that, a, is that a new hand? Go ahead. Yeah, and so I know we can't categorise every single institution. It's kind of useful versus abolition. And um, where do you think government sits? Because government is obviously a the, the biggest example of um sort of like an institution that was set up to to you know perpetuate state power. It is state power, mm. but I guess you don't argue that you're gonna you know you. I don't know. Maybe you do. I'm just wondering where do you think that sits. So. So I guess I, I, as someone who, I guess I dipped my toe into parliamentary politics, um, as many people did, right, when Jeremy Corbyn was elected leader of the Labour Party, and I put a huge amount of time and energy into the Labour Party when he was elected, right, uh, knocking on doors, you know, running youth projects, getting young people to vote, going out to FE colleges, you know, blah, 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 blah. Um, and so I, I, I'm, not, I'm not one of those people who says, oh, no, we should not engage with the parliamentary system at all. Um, I think that there are important things the parliamentary system can and should be doing in order to um, ameliorate the pain and suffering that people are currently living in this the existence of this current governmental regime. Um, but at the same time, I don't think parliamentary democracy is what's going to free us. Um, and we need something that goes beyond the limits of parliamentary democracy, um, which we may not, you know, that freedom may not come in our lifetime, but I think we need to, of course, think beyond parliamentary democracy to eventually become free. Um, if that kind of makes sense. Um, I did also leave the Labour Party after when Keir Starmer was elected, but uh, because I was like, uh, I think maybe my energies are better suited elsewhere. But if other people want to remain in the Labour Party and work on those types of things, I'm not going to be like, oh, you're doing it wrong. I don't think there's any kind of blueprints for change and that I'm doing the right thing and people who are doing this other thing are just doing it wrong and because they're like, you know what I mean? I'm not, I don't think that at all. Um, and I have lots of friends and comrades who still work with the Labour Party and I think, um, they have a lot more patience than I do, and I take my hat off to them. <laughs> uh, Raggy, go ahead. Um, I've got another one of those uh, examples. I'm just interested in your views. I'm working with a lot of lawyers. Sorry. So I was working with a group of barristers yesterday, and I was talking about you, right? On their race education, I was talking about some of the things here. And, you know, these barristers are not going to want to give up power, right? Um, so I'm just wondering, you know, they're not going to be very interested in the whole idea about the whole 
legal system is corrupt, which of course it kind of is. And also we need a legal system because, you know, like I represent refugees, right? So um, what, so what are your views around that? What, you know, how would you, how would you, what would you say to groups of lawyers? I mean, there are so many radical lawyers, right? What we might call movement lawyers. Yeah. Um, that do really brilliant work that are critical of the legal system and I think it's very possible there's such a strong history of people doing that being legal practitioners but like you said yeah um, uh, trying to fight against our border regime trying, trying to yeah. fight against um, state power and state violence um, and yeah challenging these systems and I think it's fundamental and I think lawyers are crucial I think lawyers are crucial for any yeah. grassroots movements um, but it's about it's just the extent to which people wish to um, reinforce the power of the state um, and capitalism um, and the extent to which they're using that, le that legal knowledge and power and resource to challenge it. I think that's what's really, really fundamental. Um, and there are just so many examples of people who've done that work. I mean, I'm sure I don't need to. And relying on that and using the kind of language you're using in The Guardian, right? You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, just yeah, turning yeah. down your language to bring them along and talking about justice and fairness and equity and sort of what lawyers like. Yeah. But there are, there are lawyers who do it better than me, right? There are people like Ian McDonald oh, yeah. and others, right, who have been doing this work no. from day. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, um, we, know, we, we know the same ones. Yeah, yeah. Um, who, who, yeah, who have been doing this work and, yeah, are, are legal practitioners who know the, the legal world, but also, yeah, appreciate that, that, yeah, they're movement lawyers. And I think movement lawyers are fundamental, for sure. Um, Hina, is that a new hand or an old hand? I'm not sure. I feel like it might be an old hand. Okay. Why is my hand white and other people have brown hands? I want a brown hand. Why haven't I not got a brown hand? I don't know. Somewhere. <laughs> you have to go into the settings. Yeah. Zoom, Zoom isn't advanced enough yet to do that kind of uh, <laughs> guessing for us. Um, any other questions before I get into um, get into it? No? No other questions? Oh, no. Samina, go ahead. I was just trying to find the unmute. So, so I went to um, that Paul Warmington lecture yesterday. You know the one that um, Kawan Bhopal she she organised on the CRE thing, and he was talking about um, the permanence of racism, or how Derek Bell was talking about permanent racism. And he said, as long as um, racism exists, CRT will exist, um, and and that's how it should be in a way, I suppose. But um, it's that idea of could we ever eradicate racism? And I suppose you've already answered that question and, and other people have asked that question of this, this sense of hope. What is it we can do to make, to bring down, uh, you know, the horrible monster? But it's, but isn't it economics at the end of the day? It, 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 the key is capitalism, anti-capitalism. And, and hopefully as economics changes, there will be a, 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 a stage in evolution where it's got to come crashing down at some point, isn't it? If it's not the environment that's going to bring it crashing down, do you know what I mean? Um, otherwise, it, it can't be sustained any longer unless we all get really, really rich and then dispose of the other top 1% and change them for another representation. So it, that dystopia drama that was on that, um, I think, was it last year? You know, it was completely upside down. I can't remember what it was called, but it was the African subcontinent was the dominant power. I don't know. Right. If is it, was it Noughts and Crosses? That's it, I think so, yeah. So it's that kind of thing, is that what needs to happen to make it go <laughs> upside down? I don't know, but uh, if something radical yeah. needs to happen, that's my thinking. Otherwise, we just keep 
think you know we're just scratching at the surface otherwise that's yeah so, yeah no like i mean so i'm 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 not a critical race theorist i would say that i'm a black marxist um and i think it's in, and i think that yeah critical race theory like, i don't think about class in the same way that critical race theory thinks about class um I, yeah i see class as fundamental um and yeah, as i mentioned last week last wednesday right um, it's cl class is how race becomes material right um and um but what i would say is yes unless we dismantle capitalism it will destroy the planet um and so um and so i think once we i, th I think it's crucial that our, our anti-capitalist movements are anti-racist and are feminist right and all of all of these things um if we want to defeat capitalism properly and not allow it to destroy the planet um so yeah on that and on that positive note um <laughs> let's 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 talk shall we okay let's let me just get my bits up okay so um i've just updated the slides so let me share that um get the link um let me share that link with you guys um so let me put the link in the chat if anyone wants who wants to um copy the anyone wants to follow the slides along um we are now on slide number Sixty-five. Jeez, I've made a lot of slides, haven't I? Okay, um, so I made a lot. So for those of you who came a little bit late, I have prepared a number of different possible scenarios for today's class. I wasn't sure if people want, would wanted to learn about the history of black struggle in twentieth-century Britain and its links to anti-colonialism. I wasn't sure if people wanted to talk about the two thousand eleven riots and the death of Mark Duggan and those um, rebellions, or they want people wanted to talk about Black Lives Matter and abolition. Um, and then after Wednesday, I realized that it appeared that most people wanted to talk about that, that final one, Black Lives Matter and abolition. So I've kind of added lots more slides um, uh, to, um, to talk about that. Um, if we have time afterwards, we can maybe talk about more historical things if that's what people are interested in. Um, so I think one of the reasons, maybe I'll begin by thinking, I think that one of the reasons that groups like Black Lives Matter became um, uh, so, kind of popular and regalvanized um, in 2020, probably for, I would say for kind of three broad reasons. I think the first is probably one of the most obvious ones, right? And it's this return of a, um, a, very, um, a, a very overt uh, rights nationalist, nationalism in government, right? Whether it be represented by the Trump administration in the United States, but of course, uh, Boris Johnson and his three word manifesto gets Brexit done and everything that, that, that is represented by that. I think there was popular rage um, in all sections of society, many sections of society, um, a cross-section of society um, in response to that. And I think that, that became really clear um, for me in the protests of 2020, when we saw not simply large protests in big multi-ethnic cities um, that have histories of anti-racist struggle, but of course in small towns and villages um, which have almost no history of anti-racist activism at all. And I've been doing work with new groups like Anti-Racist Cumbria and others, which are really you know, starting to set up this anti-racist infrastructure for the first time in these rural and semi-rural parts of the country. And I think part of that is linked to the fact that this get Brexit done three-word manifesto had a very specific target constituency and its target constituency were these people in these um, so-called the, the left behind small towns um, 
uh, of rural and semi-rural England. And I think that their participation in these um, Black Lives Matter mobilizations in the summer of 2020 is partly them saying, we don't want to be part of this target constituency. We don't want, we don't consider this, this nationalist project to represent the kind of politics that we want to be a part of, and the kind of vision for this country's future and our society's future that we want to be a part of. And I think that's something that's really crucial that I think, um, yeah, led to the, the protests in 2020 being the largest anti-racist mobilizations in British history. Some people say that it wasn't. Some people say that actually the largest anti-racist mobilizations in British history were the were this were the protests against slavery um, in the start of the 19th century. But I would say that they were not necessarily anti-racist. Um, because a lot of the people protesting actually still thought that black people were inferior to white people. But it was just it, it was perhaps in some ways equivalent to like an animal welfare protest. It's just, it's bad to like whip people and keep them in chains. Um, but they're not, you know, um, that those people aren't um, equal to us. And, you know, lots, lots, lots of the major advocates, people like William Wilberforce articulated this kind of animal welfareist approach to abolition rather than uh, a notion that we would associate with um, anti-racism um, and, Without digressing too much, I, the first anti-racist campaign actually emerged in uh, the southwest of England, um, led by a woman called Caroline Impey, um, and she uh, pioneered a, a magazine called Anti-Caste, um, which was, I think, one of the first explicitly anti-racist um, uh, campaigns um, in England, which was, yeah, sometime later. Okay, um, sorry, apologies for the digression. Okay, so I think this is the first reason. I think the second reason um, is the fact that, of course, there was this the, the, the mismanagement of the pandemic. I think there was a huge amount of anger around that. Um, not not simply the fact that uh, black and other racialized minorities were being disproportionately um, affected by the pandemic, um, both in terms of how they were dying um, uh, from the virus, but also how they're being disproportionately policed by the new powers that had arisen from enforcing the pandemic. And of course, finally, it was the, the brutal killing of George Floyd, which um, I've, I think I've described before as the most public lynching in, in, in human history. And I think it's, to, to, I think this kind of, for want of a better word, perfect storm of, um, of um, uh, what Stuart Hall called a conjuncture, maybe, um, uh, led to these massive mobilizations. And I think what was, what's really crucial about these mobilizations was that first, first that they, um, they weren't simply a solidarity protest about what was happening in the United States. Right? One of the big, most common um, slogans we saw was the UK is not innocent. Right? And I think this was really crucial um, for not allowing the government and other people in positions of power to say, yes, yes, we agree. Isn't America this terrible place? Isn't yeah? Oh, of course, well, of course we agree. America is this terrible place where racism happens. Yes. Um, but the spotlight was was um, shone back on onto Britain. And of course, um, one of the ways in which protesters in, ensured that the spotlight was on Britain was through the targeting, of course, through Britain's imperial monuments, right? The um, most, most, you know, most well-known both in London um, and in Bristol. But I think the second thing that's really crucial, of course, about the protests were the demands and the way in which the demands of these protests were far more coherently articulated than anything we've heard in a very long time. We've, we've we heard even Keir Starmer have to respond to questions from BBC journalists about defunding the police. 
Well, this this doesn't mean that mainstream journalism considers defunding the police to be, um, uh, you know, something that they would advocate um, or even necessarily take very particularly seriously, or that Kirstarmer's Labour Party um, would consider it to take, be taken seriously. But it was considered such a coherent and, and well articulated demand that journalists felt compelled to ask um, the leader of the opposition a at least one direct question about this policy demand. And I think that's really crucial for um, moving the, the, the sphere of the debate or the, um, what's the word, the something window, I can't remember what it's called, um, to force that as, as being the demand. Because before the demands were more black police officers, more diversity training, um, uh, more police consultancy committees, you know, all of these types of things that emerged from um, the, the, the McPherson reports, which we talked about last week, which I think people have realized we need demands which go beyond um, the findings of the McPherson reports because such little has changed since it was published um, just over um, 20 years ago. Ah, thanks Richard, yeah, the Overton window. And I think it's in this context that we can start to think about um, the idea of defunding the police, not necessarily becoming mainstream, but certainly being articulated so coherently that mainstream journalists and mainstream parliamentarians are having to publicly denounce it right they're having to publicly denounce it go ahead thomas just quick question if you're going to defund the police we also should i think maybe think about defunding british intelligence right because it, it seems again like it's a, it's a sticking plaster approach if, if we only do one they, they work hand in glove right literally actually right i just want your thoughts on that could you just speak a, maybe just a bit not to digress too much no, no, I think this is a really crucial argument. I'm happy to talk about it now. Um, so I've been talking a lot to peace campaigners over the past year, groups like Campaign Against the Arms Trade um, and uh, the old kind of um, campaigns for nuclear disarmament and those kinds of um, movements. And I think the arguments for peace, for international peace, is not dissimilar to the arguments for defunding the police. So the, ar the arguments made for, for peace and an end to militarism um, are often like, okay, so there are places in the world, places like um, uh, Afghanistan or Libya or Iraq or Somalia right, or other places where Britain has, uh, has bombed in the last uh, 10 years. And there are places where there are problems, right? There's poverty, there's uh, intra-communal violence um, that exists among the people that live there. Um, there are health problems, there's problems of uh, education. There's, there are problems there. And peace campaigners will say, bringing more violence to that context is not going to solve that problem, right? Bringing more violence to Somalia is not going to solve the problem of violence and poverty and destitution in Somalia. Bringing more violence to Afghanistan or Libya or Iraq is not going to solve the problem of harm that, is, that, that people are experiencing in these, um, these jurisdictions, these countries. And I think we can think in a very similar way about the arguments in relation to defunding the police. Yes, there is harm and violence that exists within lower income communities across Britain, but bringing more violence into that context, searching people, arresting people, incarcerating people, is not going to, and there's no evidence that it will, reduce the amount of harm and violence that exists um, within those communities. So in, in a comparable way to how peace campaigners will say, look, what we need to do is not bomb Somalia and Afghanistan and Iraq. What we instead should be doing is um, enabling them to have political autonomy. We should be not exploiting their economies, but actually, hopefully actually investing in some kind of reparative 
um, uh, um, developments um, that will that will enable um, them to develop the kind of infrastructure necessary in order to have their own livelihoods. Right, so they should have, you know, freedom over their own resources rather than, be, than being owned by. European and North American multinational corporations. Um, uh, right, we need to not prop up their dictators and provide um, uh, consultancy and arms for their dict for these dictatorships, which enable them to stay in power. Right, we can do all of these things, um, which can um, invest in the kind of social infrastructure that people need in order to live meaningful lives. Right? Health, healthcare, education, um, you know, um, uh, decent food and access to food and water um, and, and investment in the environment, all of these types of things are likely to help improve the situation of the peoples in the countries that NATO have decided should be bombed, right? And I think we can have very kind of similar kinds of arguments, as I said, for defunding the police. Investing in youth services, mental health provision, housing, secure, well-unionized jobs, all of these things are likely, are far more likely to reduce the levels of violence within these communities, rather than the police, which actually often bring more violence into these contexts, as well as actually, of course, not solving these problems. And I've got lots of lovely stats for you if you're into that kind of thing that help to illustrate that. Uh, Richard, go ahead. I thought Thomas wanted to come, come back, but yeah, I don't want to distract the argument. I was just thinking about your first point about a reaction to the rise of popular nationalism. And it just got me thinking whether how far we can extend that. I'm thinking about indigenous uh, resistance to Bolsonaro, um, gendering in Poland, the gender gendering resistance to the uh, um, anti-abortion, the abortion laws, um, even maybe reactions to Hindu nationalism and Modi. Uh, whether, whether it can be extended to that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so to go back to Thomas's point first, and then I'll go to yours. Yeah, so Thomas's point, I guess, was about the intelligence services. And I guess I was thinking about them as they operate internationally, but of course they also operate domestically as well, right? Um, and yes, um, I think, yeah, we, do, we certainly need to, um, uh, yeah, defund those as well. And, and I, I, I distinctly remember um, an editorial being published, I think in the Sunday Times by a very senior um, uh, army uh, general after Jeremy Corbyn was elected as um, uh, leader of the Labour Party, based effectively saying that like, if he becomes prime minister, we will seriously consider instigating a coup because he's a threat to national security, um, because of the, his likelihood of disempowering the intelligence services I hate this phrase, the intelligence services. We should come up with a better name. The intelligence, terrible institution. Um, uh, and so, yes, I certainly think this should be a part of it. And I think that certain ca campaign groups around defunding the police, particularly those resisting the war on terror, which I think is a section of policing very closely linked with the intelligence services, far more than perhaps the other kinds of day-to-day -day policing people might be familiar with, have done important work on this. And people like Arun Kudnani and others have, have been talking about the necessity of understanding the intelligence services and the police as a, as a continuum, um, rather than thinking about them separately in the way we resist them. And again, if someone reminds me, I can put some of Rune Nanny's brilliant work into our um, into our shared folder if people want to read more about that. Um, and also Nisha Kapoor, she's doing it as well. Um, um, but yes, Richard, um, I think certainly, yes, we can, we can think about the ways in which this has worked in other parts of the world. I mean, India is such a brilliant example, right? We've just, we've recently seen the largest um, labor movement in world history emerging out of India. And I think 
part of it is certainly about these farmers, of course, it, their material conditions are under imminent threat, right? But it's also about the fact that um, uh, not wanting to be part of this um, constituency of, um, of, of proto-fascism, effectively, right, which articulates this anti-Muslim racism, this, this caste politics, and not wanting to be incorporated into that. And I think that's a really fundamental part of it as well. Um, I know less about social movements in Brazil at the moment, but I wouldn't be surprised if, again, a popular movement against, of course, there is a popular movement against Bolsonaro, because he's about to lose the next election. Ha <laughs> ha! Um, so again, yes, we're seeing, a, I, th I think, you know, it's, when, when we see um, the, the retreat from the centre, um, and these political extremes, um, of, of, of the far right to take positions of power in government, we see people mobilising far more, I think, on the left, partly out of necessity, um, but also about people's clear rejection um, for this, um, this kind of more extreme forms of nationalism, rather than the kind of cuddly liberal nationalism we might have associated with um, uh, uh, New Labour or, or David Cameron, for instance. Any other questions? No? Okay. So, so a bit of stats now, a bit of stats. Um, if you wanted to have a look, if you want to look, if you want to look at a graph instead of me, you can look at um, slide number 82. Um, and slide number 82 um, demonstrates the fact that the prison population, and I always say this, probably people, people will be sick of me saying it, um, but the prison population, um, oh yes, Great point from Lucy, fundamentally important point as well about the role of undercover police, which is kind of linked to the intelligence services, although a lot of it is um, uh, quote unquote normal uh, police. But again, that's helping, I think that's also enabling people to think more about the role of um, intel the intelligence services in the imposition of our, our everyday lives as well. Um, okay, so yes, graph, flight slide number 86. Stats that um, I've been shouting over and over again that people are probably sick of me here saying, but I'm going to say it again, the prison population in Britain has almost doubled since the early 1990s. The women's prison population has more than doubled since the early 1990s. We're now incarcerating over twice as many women today as we were um, 30 years ago. This, of course, is not because women are twice as criminal as they were in the early 1990s, right? and, or the general population is almost twice as criminal um, or violent or deviant or all the other reasons we're told people are incarcerated. The reason that, well, there are a number of reasons, but the most crucial, I think, for our purposes, reasons for this are partly because when we when we hear about what we call neoliberalism or factorism or what have you we're told that it's a hollowing out of the state right but of course it isn't right what happens is the welfare state is eroded right um and it's replaced with so there, there some theorists say that we go from welfare to prison fare right so we see a, a defunding of our welfare system and an investment in our border prison and policing system and so rather than dealing with problems of economic and social inequality by providing people with you know the resources to live more meaningful existences um, in working class communities we instead police those working class communities more closely more violently more aggressively and more intensely right? and, I, and this helps to contribute to it and the other thing that of course helps to contribute to it is the fact that britain has is going Britain, the British state is going through multiple crises. Right? People like um, Stuart Hall write about this really coherently. Right? We have multiple economic crises, 
um, we have a, a looming um, environmental ecological crisis. Um, but of course, there's also a Britain has a, a crisis of identity, right? It's, it's lost its empire um, and it wants it still considers itself to be a superpower in the world, um, you know, which is partly partly parts of the nationalism which um, the, the Brexit campaign utilized to such great effect. Um, and it's not able to ameliorate these, these crises, these economics and social um, and ecological um, crises, right, which can therefore lead to a crisis of legitimacy for governments. And so what Stuart Hall and his colleagues say is that when these governments face a crisis of legitimacy because they're not able to deal with the ecological crises, the economic crisis, the health crisis, of course, that they're currently engulfed in, what they do is they help to they create a different crisis and they deal with that crisis and the crisis they help to create is the crisis of law and order and if there is a crisis of law and order and the law and order is the real threats that people are facing not a loss of jobs and a loss of pensions not the not the threat of ecological destruction not there's a global pandemic sweeping across the nation that this government doesn't care about enough to save people's lives but there is actually a law and order question um, and that is the real crisis the nation is facing. And if we can deal with this law and order question, then we can we don't have to worry about the other problems. And so this is something Stuart Hall talks about in in policing the crisis. But I think it's really super relevant today. And in our in our reading for this week, um, Avio and Shanice talk about this, right? The idea of the shirkers, the immigrants, um, uh, all of these people. They're the law and order crisis that this government is um, is uh, creating. Um, to to um, to galvanise a kind of moral panic around in order to in order to not simply displace the actual crises economic health ecological social but also to deal with the crisis of legitimacy um, that they face for not dealing with those real material crises and race of course plays a fundamental role in 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 galvanizing moral panic around a crisis of law and order because who are who are the criminals who are the deviants they are the terrorists they are the gangsters they are the immigrants right terrorist gangster immigrants um conjure up the kinds of racial folk devils um uh, necessary to articulate a form of racism without having to come across like um, a terribly crass bigot any questions making sense so far Mass expansion in our prison population, including, you know, not including, of course, um, the prisons that we keep for people who are undocumented, so-called immigration detention centres. Forget the fact that in our prisons now we we love we we start categorising some prisoners as so-called foreign nationals, where they're treated differently, um, uh, in order to again kind of racialize our prison system um, in ways that are not explicit but certainly implicit. Um, and so we see again the ways in which race plays fundamental roles in this expansion of police and prison power. Um, and of course, we also see it in the expansion of things like Prevent and the Terrorism Act, um, the Gangs Matrix and the War on Gangs, as well as the Hostile Environment Policy, right? Where we see surveillance of more and more communities, we see the monitoring of people's digital communications, and of course, we see the incorporation of universities, schools, healthcare institutions, housing, all of these other bodies into this, this machinery of policing and borders to monitor the potential terrorists, the potential illegal immigrants, the potential gangsters. Um, we've got two hands. Uh, go ahead, B. And then Sabina after that. Um, I could probably look, look this up, but I just wondered if you knew that 
In terms of what crime has been doing, has that been generally staying around the same or going down? But also, I know in the US, like the, a lot of the, the the increase in prison populations, a lot to do with drug, you know, drug offences and drug charges, people being in possession of, you know, cannabis or minor drug offences, and that's now representing the majority. Is that similar in the UK? Is that kind of okay? Yeah. So. Um, the criminalization of drugs has has had a massive effect on the expansion of the prison population, particularly the women's prison population. I'm pretty sure it's more than 50% of the women who are incarcerated are incarcerated because of a crime that's that's linked to either their own drug use or the drug use of somebody in their care, either an intimate partner or a child or what have you. Right? So the criminalization of drugs hugely has had a massive impact, but that also similarly for um, uh, the general uh, prison population. Um, as well. Um, but the other, there are a number of other things that have contributed to it. I remember on Wednesday we talked about things like joint enterprise, so the way in which people associated as being part of the same gang has again um, enabled an expansion of um, the prison population through people, um, lots of people being um, uh, yeah, uh, kind of brought up in this. But also I think, and this is really crucial, um, and I think I talked about this on Wednesday, which is this idea of, of, of the emergence of these categories of crime like um, mugging or um, gang crime as being a category of crime. And a, another crucial one, if we think about how uh, purported increases in crime are measured, the, a really crucial one is knife crime. So we often see on the newspapers and from politicians, knife crime is on the increase, knife crime is on the increase. The term knife crime, I think, is used for the first time ever in around 2002, 2003. Um, I can, there's a really good long read by Gary Young where he does the breaks down the numbers on this. I can I can post it in the our resources folder. Um, the, one of the first times we see it is it is knife crime. And of course, knife crime is not a crime. Right? It's a category of crime. Right? Um, so it can mean a whole swathe of different. Um, uh, offences which in, involve a, a, a bladed implement. And so, of course, by creating this new category of crime, you vacuum up all of these existing offences into this new category, creating the impression there is a new problem, there is a different problem. And so, actually, we don't know if so-called knife crime has increased very much since the 1990s, because police forces only started, only invented this category of crime in the early 2000s, and therefore only began to um, uh, record it in the early 2000s. Um, and it's um, there's another good, there's a couple of other good reports by the uh, Centre for Crime and Justice Studies, which basically crunches the numbers on this again and says, yeah, it's basically impossible to say. Um, and there's also some really good research by the British Medical Journal that looks not simply at um, crime stats on use of bladed implements, but also um, hospital admissions as well, and actually finds a, a great deal of fluctuation between um, these types of these types of things. Um, too. Um, and the stuff on Operation Blunt 2, um, I sent an article around last week, which basically found that whether you increase stop and search massively, a medium amount or barely at all, has no relation at all in fluctuations in um, uh, crimes involving bladed implements. Um, and what generally increase, leads to increases are you see increases in the summer and decreases in um, the winter months and when more or fewer people are outside. Um, but yeah, I can I can send you guys lots and lots of stats if that's what people um, would find useful. Um, Samina, then Richard. I was just thinking about you know how you were saying so in in, in instead of trying to deal with a crisis of economics, we have this crisis of law and order. I mean, it, you know, it's historic, isn't it? With Churchill and Second World War, Blair with weapons of mass destruction. Thatcher with, um, I can't remember what that place was called in Argentina, what was it? Oh, my memory's gone. Um, the enemy within was a good one as well, yeah. 
yeah so so but those things so but that costs money as well doesn't it this whole thing of if it's all down to economics and you just want to get votes, or is it just a way of controlling and, and maintaining the status quo? Do you know what I mean? It, it, we've seen through history this is constantly doing it. So am I being really naive here and thinking, why are we still doing these things? And why don't we just deal? Wouldn't it be time well spent just trying to deal with the economic side of things rather than killing people more? And, you know, or not everyone thinks like us or do you know what I mean? What <laughs> it's just it's just not logical. Is it really? That's my point, I think, I'm making. Well, I guess it depends what your interests are. Um, if your interests yeah. are about accumulating wealth for Serco and G4S and Mighty um, and these other kind of um, uh, what are called kind of logistical um, kind of companies, um, then concentrating wealth in those areas is done very, very effectively if you build more prisons um, and have more security guards and do these types of things. So Dexo, um, et cetera, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, it, it makes it makes perfect sense, um, and it makes yeah, it's a very very efficient way. Well, it's actually very inefficient, but it's a very um, profitable way of taking taxpayers' money and turning it into private wealth um, in ways that I think like youth clubs and mental health services just aren't really don't really cut it's it in the same yeah. kind of way. So it's the um, redistribution of wealth that we really need to be doing. So it goes back again, doesn't it? To yeah, yeah. this yeah. this is a redistribution of wealth upwards. Yeah, is, is what I'd call it. Yeah. Um, so we've got Richard then Thomas. Thanks. Yeah. Uh, also, the work of uh, Netpol and um, various there are various monitoring groups. New monitoring group, uh, Stopwatch, are brilliant on on all of this. Um, I just want to say on the uh, on the prison figures, there's there's several other examples running behind this. I think uh, just to pick out three very quickly, if I may, um, lifers. Yeah, and there's a there's a, a growing residual number of people who are in prison forever. Um, and that's significantly inflating the population. Short sentences is another massive group and remand because, you know, the court system is just not working very well. So a lot of people that actually haven't necessarily done anything, but they're just kind of gummed up in in the carceral system. So, yeah, and I think there's a passion angle to all of that. Yeah, and, and, and I think those patterns are certainly reflects in the United States as well, with um, yeah, people on remand, uh, people yeah, in, in for short sentence, all that kind of stuff for like not paying tickets, those kinds of things. Um, uh, who had a, has a, oh yeah, Thomas, Thomas. Yeah, do you see connections then between this invisibility um, of the way that this, these atrocities are carried out? I mean, for example, in Kenya, the concentration camps, right? The British gulag, uh, killing Aboriginals out of sight of the British public, and then the hidden way in which atrocities are carried out with these, just by the existence of these prisons, like it's always out of sight of, so whether it's outsourcing uh, colonial and slave labor, so to speak, or you have it within a prison that's enclosed, right? The general public does not know what's going on. So there's an aspect of secrecy and invisibility to it. Because that way, like the Nazis, if they do it out of sight, then the public doesn't know. So like the Polish public doesn't know what's happening in Auschwitz and so, right, you know, right? Is there some... uh, yeah, I, I, think, I, think, I, think, I think maybe if, if people were more aware of the kind of exploitation and violence that takes place in, 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 in certain prisons, um, maybe there'll be more public sympathy for it. But I think, I think crucially what prisons does is it, it, it creates the impression that the people who are imprisoned are bad people, right? They are, they are dangerous people, they are immoral, they are morally degenerate people. Um, and a lot of people think that prisons should be places for punishment. They should be places of 
of, of suffering. Um, and actually our prisons should be harsher because the harsher and more suffering people, um, the more harsh our prisons are, the more suffering people endure, the less likely they are to commit um, the violence and depravity or whatever it is that's led to them uh, being incarcerated in the first place. Now, this is this is the popular logic, right? And this is something which is basically perpetuated continually, whether you turn on CSI or whether you uh, turn on BBC Parliament or whether you open um, the newspaper, right? This, this is something which is continually perpetuated. But of course, when we look at our prison system, what do we see? We actually see people who are more likely to have been expelled from school or have special educational needs or have experienced domestic violence or child abuse or have experienced homelessness or joblessness. Um, and, and, and home eviction, people who are more likely to have a history of mental health problems um, or, or have used drugs problematically or in, a, or in a harmful way, a whole swathe of social problems. And people like Andrew Davis, who pioneered ideas of abolitionist politics, talk about how prisons are places in which they incarcerate away social problems, right? They don't lock away violence, they don't lock away harm, they lock away social problems. So rather than dealing with these social problems by providing people with jobs and education and healthcare and housing and all the things that people need in order to live a meaningful existence. Instead, they just lock those problems away, um, which of course exacerbates those problems because we know that people who are incarcerated are, um, are likely to um, have their mental health problems exacerbated, are likely to be more alienated from their friends and their families and their communities and from decent employment um, and from secure housing um, and all of these types of um, social problems which make people more likely to come into contact with the criminal justice system. Oh, I'm sorry. Sorry, I just meant to add quickly also the, the, the secret flight from Birmingham and other places of deportation. Also, yeah. Yes, but get them out of the way, right? Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's interesting. There's a kind of, they are often the deportations are done in secrets, I think partly because they don't want people resisting, but there's also a kind of spectacular performance of this violence, right? Where Prissy Patel will come on and smirk at, at, the, at, the, at the news cameras and, and gleefully tell everyone that she's deported X number of foreigners from this country, particularly if they're foreign nationals who have committed a, a, a criminal offence. And so there's this... There, there's this kind of like we, we need to do it in secret we do kind of do it in the dead of night um it's you know but at the same time there is this kind of performance of we, you know we're the authoritarian state that's dealing with this law and order crisis which is dealing with this crisis at our borders and and this is how we're, we're shown that we're strong in this country as well so i think there's there's two more than one thing happening there i reckon um so deepak go ahead um, yeah i was just thinking about um your your explanation the explanation of um institutions having culpability in in this project I, what, what one of the counters that i thought about is um the track record in in the police of of people that look like you and i that as they rise through the ranks of the police um what i what i see is a is a pattern of um adopting and internalizing the othering processes that then perpetuate um, the adoption of um, legislation and policies such as um, prevent and um, knife crime. Uh, and, and what the names I think of is, for example, Ali Desai initially um, thought of Muslims as being dangerous and, and untrustworthy. And then there was Tariq Gafur, who followed a similar path and, in fact, um, sought to work with mosques to put Muslim people on the straight and narrow. But then later on, both of them were subject to um, racism within the police, so they ended up leaving. And then there was Michael Fuller, who, 
who I, I, I love his work and love him, but the trouble is that one of the things that he said while he was chief constable is that black people have a have a, a deficit and a, a lack of role models, and this is why they don't progress in society. So so each of these people, as as they've risen through the ranks, um, and there's a, there seems to be a pattern here with with Pretty Patel, um, they've all kind of perpetuated this internalization uh, and then meeting out of racism and brutalizing people that look like them. Um, in the kind of way that some in, in Ireland chief um, have done to, to Irish people. And, and so I wonder how, how we can counter this in, in the um, move to um, disband the police, because this is one of the things that one of the arguments that, that may face um, the opposition um, to dismantling the police, as I say. Yeah, I mean, um, I think that progressing um, and had been given more power within any, any institution requires you to, in some ways, internalize the assumptions of that institution, right? It's, it's very unlikely that um, uh, that you would um, be promoted in your job if all of the practice that you exhibited went against the, van the, 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 the prescribed values um, of the institution in question. Right, so I think we should be unsurprised that in order to yeah, in order to be be afforded more entitlements and powers within an institution, you have to demonstrate the fact that you, an investment in reproducing the assumptions and power of that particular institution. Um, and people who don't do that are, are far less likely to be um, uh, uh, to progress um, within that particular institution. Um, uh, which I think is partly why maybe people like Jeremy Corbyn was such a kind of crisis for many people in the Labour Party because he represented such a a, um, a, a kind of a disruption um, of what were considered to be the kind of core assumptions of um, of uh, post Tony Blair Labour Party. Um, it's one minute past three. Shall we have a break? Yeah. We've been talking a lot. I've been talking a lot. Um, shall we? Shall we have? Shall we give ourselves? All right, it's two minutes past three now. Should we have eight minutes? Should we come back at ten past three. Is that all right? Um, great. Well, great. Cool. See you guys in eight minutes. Amazing. Recording. Okay. So I'm going to share my screen now with you guys because we're going to look through abolitionist and non-abolitionist reforms. So thinking about the different kinds of police reforms and thinking through the ones that reinforce the power and legitimacy um, of the police and ones which erode the power and legitimacy of the police and replace them with other kinds of um, uh, uh, social or um, well, yeah, social infrastructure, which can help to improve public safety and reduce violence and harm. So let me get that up. So this was, I, remember, I think a coalition of groups created this, um, led by a great group here in the UK called Abolitionist Futures. Um, and so you can find it on their websites. Um, I can put the link in, but also obviously this is on the slide. So these are the kind of what these are called reformist reforms rather than abolitionist reforms. And they can't, they, a lot of them are probably the kinds of reforms that you're quite familiar with seeing um, on uh, emerging from things like the, um, the McPherson inquiry and others, right? And what, um, what these, this coalition of groups have done is they've, 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 not only have they written down like a list of these kind of reformist reforms, but they've written these questions along the top. So you've got these reforms along the bottom, I mean, along the side, um, 
and these questions along the top that we can ask ourselves when we're trying to determine the extent to which um, refor the reform that's being proposed is abolitionist or non-abolitionist, right? So um, the first one is best use of, stop, of, of a stop and search scheme, right? Um, so this is a reformist reform, right? Why is it considered a reformist reform? First question we ask is, does it reduce funding to the police? No, it's actually likely to increase funding to the police through training and consultants. The second question it asks is, does it challenge the notion that the police increase safety? Again, no. It implies that stop and search improves community safety as long as it is done fairly. Thirdly, um, does it reduce the powers, tools, tactics or technology that the police have? Again, no, it doesn't. It maintains stop and search whilst creating an impression of accountability. And anyone who's sat on a police consultancy committee board or um, group and all, all those other things, which I used to when I um, worked for an organisation called Stopwatch, um, will know that's the case. And finally, we have to ask ourselves the question, does it reduce the scale of policing? Again, no. Um, it reduced overall numbers in stop and searches on um, this particular screen, but it increased the proportion experienced by people of colour. And so it, I, I won't read through um, all of these, um, but I think some of them um, are particularly um, useful. Um, I think one of them that's often used a great deal, and since we're talking about racism, we should probably um, address it, is the one, the penultimate one, hate crime legislation. I think this is a really crucial one, and I've, I've talked about it in more detail um, on, um, on the slides a bit later on, if people want to talk about this further, or you can read about it in your own time. I've put the, the, a link to an article on it as well. Um, so hate crime legislation, of course, is something which, again, was popularised following um, the Stephen Lawrence campaign. And again, we've seen it re-arising um, following uh, the campaign in solidarity with uh, Sarah Everard and the idea that gender-based violence should be um, categorised as a hate crime. But again, firstly, I think the problem with hate crime is that it creates the impression that racial violence or gender-based violence um, or um, homophobic violence or transphobic violence is because the person who's doing it hates the person um, that they're attacking or harassing, right? So it's the idea that um, uh, this, these kinds of, these forms of violence are um, emotional things, right? You, I hate black people, I hate women, blah, blah, I hate, right, it's an emotional thing. And I think what that seeks to do is a number of things. The first thing it seeks to do, I think, is depoliticize this type of violence. Right? It, it treats it as something which is emotional rather than something which is actually political. Um, and is part of a, a wider political system, right? Which is linked to the second thing that it does, which, which, is, which is it decontextualizes it from structural racism, from, from structural patriarchy, right? From structural heteronormativity, right? And this is really crucial as well, because it, 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 it individualizes it, it atomizes it. This individual or set of individuals have these feelings, they have these emotions of hatred, and that's why they've committed um, uh, this act of violence. That's why they've committed these acts of harassment rather than understanding racial violence and actually being connected to a wider system of disciplinary power, right? Which, um, where, which, is, why we, when, which is why we saw um, a massive increase um, in uh, uh, violence against Muslim people following the referendum result in 2016, right? We see that structural racism um, relating to the state and to governments and what have you linked to this um, so-called racial hate crime. Um, but it's, 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 of course, those two things are connected, right? We can see um, uh, comparable things happening during the pandemic with a massive increase in violence against people of East Asian heritage in this country, right? So we see these forms of kind of uh, uh, structural uh, racism and discrimination um, uh, having kind of a knock-on effect 
um, on the streets um, and in people's interpersonal interactions. Um, and of course, therefore, what this leads to is a criminal justice response to racism. And so not only does it, does it uh, detach racism from structures of power, institutions of power, it then takes these same racist institutions and considers them to be the manner in which this problem or this issue should be, can be best solved. Right, so hate crime legislation increases um, training for and funding for training and consultants for the police. Um, so it doesn't reduce funding for the police. It reinforces the idea that harm is caused by caused by individual people, rather than by the rather by rather than by institutions, systems, and cultural norms, and can therefore be resolved by policing and punishing individual people. Um, uh, um, it it. Um, often is used by the police against communities of colour who already bear the brunt of policing. Um, I mean, we can see this in this country. I mean, when the Race Relations Act was first um, used, um, sorry, first introduced, the first person to receive a custodial sentence from it was a black person. Um, and again, we can continue, and we, we, we see this very, very often, uh, the way in which this, this kind of this kind of police power is actually used to criminalize uh, black communities. Um, and does it reduce the scale of policing? No, again, it often entangles voluntary and community organizations into working with the police and divert, diverts resources away from preventative measures. And this is something, again, I've experienced a great deal as an organization I work with called the Monitoring Group, where basically it's got to the point now where all of our funding has to come from MOPAC, it has to come from the police. Um, and um, and so therefore the police have far more power over the direction that the organization goes and, and the way and the way in which its operations function and they of course will make attempts at our group being less critical um, of the police if they possibly can by attempting to withdraw funding from us because of course well people might not know but the monitoring group addresses racial violence both that takes place on the streets but also states violence against um, black and brown communities as well quite they don't understand those two things as being um, separate from each other. Um, and so again, it's a way of the police um, expanding their power beyond their own reach. And a lot of the time, most, I would say over 50% over of the referrals that we get at the monitoring group are from the police. So um, the police, you know, don't know how to deal with someone who's experiencing racial harassment or violence and they're just like, look, can you not deal with this police? Um, and then that's because, you know, you know the police have a whole swathe of resources at their disposal, so people have to call the police. Um, and the monitoring group has two full-time members of staff and two part-time members of staff, and are one of the few national organisations dealing with these kinds of issues. Does that does that make sense? Shall I go through? The, are there any questions? I should say. Will it make more sense once I go through the abolition statements? Maybe. But sorry, go ahead, Nathaniel. Um. I don't know if it's a question or so, but um, I feel like a lot of time people want a, they want another option. They want something that definitely works. So it's like, all right, I'll get rid of police, fine, but show me something that will work tomorrow. Um, and I was listening to a podcast with an abolitionist and their response is like, how dare you say that? Because police have unlimited resource globally year on year um, and get to mess it up every day. Um, but you want me to do something with no money, no power, no resource, and have it like fixed, not trying to fix hundreds of years of, of an institution overnight. Um, so yeah, just like, I think looking at things like that and understanding how on the face of it, some like policing can change with like, community options and stuff like that, but actually 
with, with the money and I guess power still set, staying in the same place is really, really helpful. Um, because oftentimes the police might say, oh, actually, you know, with the, our funding's been cut and so on and so forth. But um, I guess it doesn't talk about where, how still a lot of resource goes there. Um, there's a good documentary called Charm City, which looks at, um, I think, Baltimore. And it looks at it looks at police, it looks at um, policymakers and government officials and community workers and how they all kind of fight for the same pot of money. But there's only ever one winner, which is the police, um, in terms of getting that resource. And yeah, so it's just just like an observation of like maybe something to say to people when you say I'm, I'm an abolitionist or um, I believe in X, and they're like, well, what's Y? And you're like, well, actually, it might take a lifetime to figure out what why is but i'd rather do that than maintain what we have now yeah yeah and and i mean i think the interestingly it's got to the point now where the police have so much power and responsibility that they're actually saying well actually we don't want to do this ourselves we don't want to be the person who's called when someone when someone has racist graffiti um dobbed all over their home we actually want someone else to be called we want the monitoring group to be called because we don't really know what to do slash we don't care um Right, we um, when someone's having a mental health crisis, we actually would rather medical professionals turn up because we don't actually don't know what to do in that crisis. Um, but I think what's key is that the, what the police also say is we still want control over these kinds of services. So we want these services to be MOPAC funded. We want them to be internal to the police. We want to be able to dictate the direction of them. Right, and so this is. Um, so, th so it's not necessarily about the police being like, we want other people to have the power. No, no, we still want to have the power. We just don't want to have the responsibility to, to actually carry out these kinds of services. We want other people to be responsible for these kind of things um, while we kind of hold the purse strings and can therefore um, yeah, get rid of people's resources if they um, uh, are, are too critical of us or, or anything like that. Any other questions before we go on to the alternatives, um, abolitionist reforms? No? Okay. Let me oh, share my screen again. Oh, sugar, that's the wrong one. Okay. Green one. Okay. Okay. Can everyone see green? Yes. Okay. So these are the abolitionist abolitionist steps, they're called, not reforms, abolitionist steps. Right. So, um, and so here are some examples, maybe, maybe I'll go through all of them. So the examples they come up with are withdrawing lethal tools and tactics, tasers, pepper spray, spit hoods, firearms. These can be an abolitionist step, right? Um, because they reduce police funding, right? They're, they're having less funding for all of their weapons. Um, they challenge the notion that police increase safety, right? By, um, the, so the idea that the more power and resources you give to the police, the safer will be, right? This challenges that assumption. Um, does it reduce the power and tools and tactics and technology that the police have? Of course, yes, it does. And does it reduce the scale of policing? Yes, again, they don't have the capacity to inflict as much harm um, as they would if they did, um, if they have these lethal, lethal weapons. Right. Next one. Um, scrapping police programs and infrastructure that target specific communities prevent the gangs matrix. We could have, we can list other ones, right? Hostile environment policy, um, the new powers that are being used to criminalize um, gypsy Roma traveler communities, all of these kinds of um, policing programs and infrastructure. Um, again, reduce funding for police, challenge the notion that police increase safety, reduce their tools and tactics and reduce the scale of policing. Um, 
Next one, scrap, produce or reject extensions of police power. Again, um, uh, the current um, uh, policing crime evidence and courts bill is a really great example of this, right? It's the fact that we need to challenge these kinds of expansions of police power. Um, this is a really crucial one, establishing firewalls between all the data collected or held by essential services and the police, right? So more and more the police have access to our healthcare data. They want um, school registers. I know that um, uh, here, you know, at universities, you're supposed to submit, so you're supposed to do registers in your lectures to make sure that um, people who are here on student visas are all um, attending their lectures. Otherwise, Pretty Patel will have them kidnapped in the night and, and, um, and sent off. Um, in a 747 some, in, 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 or something, right? So again, um, this is really crucial for eroding the power that the police have and this assumption that the more power we give to the police, including our, our personal data, um, is going to somehow make us safer. Um, repeating laws that criminalise survival, right? So drugs, sex work, migration, vagrancy laws, all of these types of things, which we talked about a little bit before, which have been so fundamental to increasing um, Britain's massively bloated prison population. Um, again, repealing those types of things. Um, scrapping the use of pre-criminal orders, right? So I, again, I mentioned this a bit today and also on Wednesday, things like criminal behaviour orders, knife crime prevention orders, but also things like control orders and other things like that, in which um, people who haven't committed a crime, but the police, police intelligence tells them that on the probability of balance, they're more likely than not to commit a crime. Um, uh, means that, that will enable them to impose these kinds of injunctions on people which prevent them from going to certain places, speaking or interacting with certain people, um, using social media or the internet and these types of things, and if um, they break them, um, then they can be given a custodial sentence and they're often given to children um, as young as uh, 14 or 13. And finally, and of course so crucially, prioritising spending money on community health education and affordable housing rather than prioritizing spending on um, maintaining law and order right maintaining policing and again this is this is this is probably the most fundamental one which hopefully we can talk about in a bit more detail if these become our our priorities for what for how um, public resources should be spent rather than our current priority right which we're told you know we, we our government talks more about a, a crisis of immigration and a crisis of law and order and they talk about the housing crisis they talk about our, our, the crisis in our social care and our youth sector and the crisis then the mental health crisis that this country is embroiled in then we'll see a fundamental um, change in our priorities. And again, these are all things I mentioned before that will enable people to be far less likely to come into contact with the criminal justice system, right? If they're able to have access to these kinds of resources, youth services, mental health provision, decent housing, um, uh, uh, proper jobs, um, all of um, uh, support for, support for uh, people who use drugs problematically, um, uh, domestic violence services, all of these types of Okay, talking for a while. Any questions, thoughts, reflections? Sorry, there's a, I don't know how to turn off team, so it's just gonna bleed for a bit, maybe. Uh, Richard, go ahead. And then- yeah, notif Notifications. Yeah, just an observation. I was just struck by uh, the, the reforms are all framed as positive, better, more, new. Um, whereas the abolitions are all framed in the negative, at least at, at least from a police perspective. Um, so uh, withdraw, scrap, 
less money. I'm just wondering whether that could be turned around so we can actually frame the abolitionists as uh, in a positive sense, yeah? Because actually, um, I think safer streets, happier communities, um, you know, there is a way that they can be framed in the positive. Yes, certainly. I mean, I think I think the, the final one is the only positive one, but I think they've left it quite vague um, because, and I think for good reason, they don't want to be too prescriptive in this, right? In certain communities, you might need, you know, there might be a, certain communities you might need, housing might be the big issue, right? Or um, support for people who have addiction problems might be the big issue. But in another community, and actually what we need here is better youth services. And what we actually need in this community is, um, you know, the EMA being re reintroduced so our young people can go to the local FE college. And then this, you know, in another community might be about actually what we need is, you know, something else. And so I think, yeah, I, th I think partly for that reason, they've kind of kept it more, um, yeah, a bit more open, um, if that makes sense. But yes, I, I agree with you, framing it. When I, when I articulate it, I often articulate it in this, yeah, more affirmative, mm. positive way, rather than being like, stop this, stop this, stop this, stop this. But it, even that last one is is less money for the police, basically, isn't it? I mean, they know that well, which is which is why there's so much resistance to these sorts of ideas. What I mean is that if if we kind of step back and say, hang on, what what is policing meant to be, be achieving? Yeah, it's been meant to be achieving less mm. crime, happier communities, safer streets, all of these things. So actually, what these strategy, alternative strategies are attempt to achieve exactly an improvement in all of those things yeah yeah no definitely yeah and I think these kind of more yeah if we kind of abstract it a little bit from these more kind of these kind of more policy things and think about what people's vision is I mean I think one act one exercise that a lot of the Americans often do which we can't really do in Britain because we don't do this this American thing which is like hey everyone I want everyone to close your eyes and imagine safety imagine what you what, what you envision is, is just being safety and everyone does it for like a minute and everyone opens their eyes and they say right hands up who envisaged being surrounded by police officers who envisaged a, who, who 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 had a prison in their vision right no one right that's not what we envisage right um, and i think that's a useful exercise which yeah probably works better on americans than um uh, english people who are just like oh god closing my eyes i can't do that um uh, but i think is it yeah a useful perhaps tool of thinking through that uh, Nathaniel, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Hello. Um, just, I think a note about so when you think about abolitionist steps, and you know what you mentioned earlier about welfare being removed and defunded by the state, and then prison and border and policing increase increasing. Like, where does that leave us with like actually executing those next steps, where you have more academies, um, the schools, no youth clubs. Um, and I guess, and obviously no social housing, like, I feel like how it looks now in 2021 is pretty different to, like, I guess, 30 years ago. Um, and it just makes you wonder, oh, what, yeah, what is, what is an abolitionist step in, in our current year or next few years look like rather than um, what it was like when I was growing up? I think this is a really crucial, I'm really glad you raised this, right? Because I think what's really crucial as well is not um, kind of harking back to this perfect bygone era of the British welfare states, you know, 1960s, early 1970s, when everything was great, where we know actually, for a lot of people, things weren't really that great um, in the 1960s and 70s. Um, and actually we need, a, we need to have a, a more democratic, because we also know that the welfare state was also a disciplinary tool, right, in the 1960s and 70s. Um, and actually what we need to think about is a new vision 
of um, how we develop a kind of more, a more community-led, um, more community-led forms of infrastructure, um, and how we have more community-led forms of, as I mentioned, mental health practitioners or DV services or all of these types of things, um, which where there'll be more local autonomy rather than yeah than being used as this kind of disciplinary tool of the state, which they can take away or, or give at will and decide who is deserving and who is undeserving of these welfare provisions. Uh, Laura, go ahead. Yeah, I, I suppose I was just thinking about, and it, it relates to what Nathaniel said and the the kind of the move away from um, more democratically accountable services and communities and whether there's a direct correlation between the greater transference of public money to private capital and increased policing. Because, you know, I'm aware you, you self-define as a black Marxist and like lots of abolitionists um, from what I see from the campaigns, which are kind of are talking about, you know, you've just gone through a, a list of, of things there. Um, but I wonder if it's like a deliberate tactic not to talk about capitalism <laughs> um, and interrelated to um yeah, we are at a time where if we look at what coronavirus has done, it's shifted huge amounts of public money into the private sphere. And then we have, a, you know, a really sinister police and crime sentencing bill. Do you think there is a correlation essentially between those two things? Yeah, 100 percent. Right. You can't like if you're going to impoverish people more and make their lives more and more precarious, you're going to need police because people need to survive, right? They're gonna, there's gonna be sex work, there's gonna be people selling drugs, there's gonna be people you know, stealing property, right? That is what is going to happen if you impoverish people. Um, and so I think that's fundamentally important. Um, I do also think that there are a lot of people who are, who are anti-racist and abolitionists who are not Marxists. Um, and the people who read people like Andrew Davis and read her black feminism, read her black radicalism, but don't read her communism. Um, and I think that's a shame. Um, and um, but yes, I, yeah. So and and I and I think yeah, these people often make a lot of noise on places like Twitter as well. Um, and yeah, I think I think yeah, we have to understand fundamentally that class is how race becomes material. Um, otherwise, it just becomes this abstract thing that we can just dance about all day and never really. Um, uh, and I think struggle to make understand its kind of its concrete material reality. Um, was there another hand as well? Or is it gone? I thought I saw another one, but maybe it's disappeared. No other questions. Oh, cool. Okay. So it's not happy. Okay. So I was going to talk a little bit about um, the reading that we have, but I was also oh yeah, I was going to talk about something even more concrete and practical, which is a really great organisation called Forefront Projects, which is seeking to implement these kinds of um, abolitionist reforms in a local community in North London. Um, and so, so here you can see um, uh, one of the front pages of their website, or no, the about section of their websites, um, uh, which says here, as you can see, we're building a powerful youth-led movement to transform the way peace and justice are understood by centering healing rather than punishment. 
Um, and this is Jaheem's Justice Centre where they, they operate out of. Jaheem was a young man from the community um, uh, yeah, who, who lost his life to youth violence. Um, and it says here, um, as you can see, at that forefront, we centre healing and, and, practice and practice transformative justice whilst directly challenging the UK's addiction to criminalisation, policing and prisons. We're transforming the way in which society understands how to support communities affected by violence and shaping the agenda around how to address the systemic causes of it and I think this is really helpful and useful because it brings us up to like one of the key things one of the other key components of abolitionist thinking which is the idea of transformative justice and I think if I was going to describe it in the most simple terms possible I would say that transformative justice is a idea of justice which seeks to identify that an individual or group of individuals have committed harm right but um, what's also happened is that the world around that individual has also committed harm against them. So whilst that person, yes, they may have committed harm against somebody else and they need to, um, they need to uh, transform the way in which they act and they think and they conduct themselves, but also the world around them needs to change as well, right? Their relationship with work or housing or their mental health or uh, drugs or whatever it might be um, uh, that's that's leading to them experiencing harm, right? And, and so it's about, so, so there are two types of transformation there, right? There's the transformation of the in individual who's committed harm, but there's also a, a, a process of transforming the world around that individual as well. And so organizations like the Forefront Project, if they do have a young person who uh, has committed harm um, against somebody else, they work to transform both of those things for that young person. Right, both themselves and the way in which they interact with other people, um, but also, of course, the world around that young person. And they and they do all the work they can to improve the, the that, that young person's relationship with, as I mentioned, their health or their education or their work or their housing or um, the, the their documented status or, or all of the things that require, that has led to them becoming more likely to commit harm against somebody else and thus leading to, to them coming into contact with the criminal justice system. Does that kind of make sense? And I mean, I'm talking kind of abstractly, and I think, and that's intentional, because of course there's no blueprint for this, right? There's no like, okay, so there's this five-step program, you've like got into a fight and you've like beaten someone up pretty bad. And so we're gonna go through, you know, five steps. Once you get to step five, you're gonna be this lovely reformed person with a council house and a therapist, and you know, you've joined your union and everything's great. Right. That's like there's unfortunately, um, as far as I'm aware, there isn't as, as, as coherent a blueprint as that. Um, and I'm sure if there was um, Forefront would have published it on their website. Um, but what they do tell us is this. Um, so. So Forefront pioneers an approach which empowers young people most directly harmed by violence in the criminal justice system to be at the forefront um, of a grassroots movement for change. And this is really crucial as well, right? So the young people um, that, that become involved in these, these forms of transformative justice aren't simply recipients of a service, right? They become part of the projects themselves and many of them um, become um, a part of the organization. This is part of this, this transformation. 
Um, so their work centers on healing and transformative justice, as I mentioned, um, and works directly to challenge the UK's, okay, blah, 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 we've said this already. Um, and they amplify their members' voices um, and advocate for a holistic approach to build peace. Um, and they've transformed the way in which society understands how to support young people who have been affected by violence and shape the agenda around how to tattle, tackle the systemic causes of it. And again, this, obviously this is so crucial, right? For thinking through how to provide resources for young people who've experienced all of these forms of social and economic um, and political exclusion, which have led to them committing harm or violence against somebody else, and thus um, becoming uh, coming into contact with the criminal justice system. And I think this is also really um, um, crucial because groups like Forefront aren't simply running these youth projects. Um, um, uh, the Forefront projects are also um, part of the Kill the Bill Coalition, right? They'll be their presence um, at the protest this weekend, talking about the way in which this new bill isn't simply about eroding um, the freedom to protest, but is also going to have profound impacts for the young people in their own communities, right? Whether it be through the expansion of stop and search powers or the expansion of so the so-called multi-agency approach um, to tackling youth violence, which seeks to incorporate healthcare professionals and educators and other uh, social service providers into the police's sphere of influence, um, a whole host of um, reforms which are likely to directly affect these young people and the young people in their community. And so I think they're a really crucial way of um, bridging this, what we might consider to be more traditional forms of kind of protest activism with this kind of community organising, which, which is in a very material way, developing alternatives to this, um, what they call the the, uh, Britain's addiction to policing and, and punishments. Any questions making sense? Um, okay, I can just I can just go on. I wasn't sure if there if there are any specific aspects that people wanted um, to go into. Um, so I just found this other slide, which I thought again was useful for if, you, if I haven't done this to death already, um, which I think again is another kind of, um, yeah, useful way of thinking through um, uh, the kind of activism that people are doing in order to erode the power of the police. Um, and so this organization, the art of existing, I think I found from an organization called CAPE, which stands for Communities Against Prison Expansion, um, here, based here in the UK. And again, that what they're talking about here are um, the kind of work that they seek to do, right? So they um, attempt to do de-escalation, right? Um, so trying to create environments and, and communities where violence and harm is less likely to arise and how they can do that through um, different kinds of social and, and community services, right? Providing direct a direct response, right? So building a community uh, capacity for direct action. So what does that mean? That means things like not simply providing community responses when um, there is conflict within for, among different people in a community, but also being able to um, directly intervene when um, a, a person might be uh, harassed by the police or, or experience violence from the police. Um, for uh, things like Copwatch, so that's kind of community monitoring projects, like, like the ones that Richard mentioned before. Um, and also, of course, court support, right? So 
um, providing people with police action lawyers rather than duty solicitors and supports um, as um, they go through the criminal justice system. So again, these are the kind of practical ways in which people who might not necessarily be directly based in the communities, which are being directly affected by um, these problems of policing and, and borders, um, are doing are also doing this kind of activist work to provide resources and support um, in different ways as well. Um, so there are and there are a few other things which um, I kind of planned on covering um, in today's class, and I wasn't sure what things people preferred um, we focus on um, because I was I've been thinking through um, Lola Olafemi's book Dis um, Feminism Interrupted Disrupting Power and her chapter on abolition um, and understanding abolition as a feminist practice and thinking through gender-based violence and I'm happy to talk about that in some more detail if people might think that's useful. Um, I was also going to talk about our reading for this week um, which which I think might be useful as well which is a bit more abstract but people you know if we can if people want to talk about that we can. Um, we can talk in a bit more detail about hate crime if people want to um, and why hate crime doesn't work. Um, uh, and also, finally, um, we can also talk about um, how we respond to um, the police committing uh, acts of violence or murder or, or, or killings as well, and the extent to which um, we can rely on the criminal justice system or we should rely on the criminal justice system as the way in which we uh, seek justice um, following an act of um, police violence, which has led to somebody being seriously harmed or, or killed. Is there any, are there any of those that people are particularly interested in or should I just rattle my way through them one by one? Um, <laughs> I'm trying to be like democratic and stuff here. There's, people aren't particularly passionate about any of these. I should just go through them one by one or. The last one was really interesting. It's something I struggle with like, yeah, yeah. What is justice now? <laughs> I agree with Sarah Everard, like the response being that they were going to introduce more plainclothes police officers within pubs and bars to kind of tackle the um, violence against women issue. And that was just seemed so, so against what everyone was saying, yet that was their kind of main solution. So yeah, I think the last one I'm also particularly interested in. Yeah, great. So, so violence against women and what we do, how we deal with police, um, so I guess that's kind of linked, but yeah, it's more this kind of idea of how how do we quote unquote punish or at least have accountability and transformation for police officers um, that have committed um, serious offences. Right, great. So um, I've picked an article um, which I thought was useful, which people can obviously read the whole of in their own time, um, by um, a woman called Derica Purnell, and she is based in the United States, um, but um, uh, I think. What she says here, I think, is, is useful for us to be thinking through as well. Right? Um, so she's talking about a specific case um, uh, of um, in the United States um, of somebody who was killed by the police and uh, the response of people. And this is very common, and particularly to those who, people who have worked with the families of those who have been killed by the police. Um, it's We should be unsurprised that um, it's not uncommon for them to want uh, custodial sentences for the people um, responsible for the death of their loved one. Um, so she says here that um, Merit and some activists have issued calls for more justice. Um, and I understand this impulse. After a police killing, prison feels like something. And that something can feel like justice when the other option feels like nothing. People understandably want police officers to be punished for killing black people. Right? And so I think this is really crucial because within most of us within the mainstream of our society we're told that the only thing that 
just justice equals punishment right that is that is what justice looks like right and so what of course transformative justice seeks to um enable us to do is to rethink what justice is justice is something we should understand as being beyond simply the quite base satisfaction we might feel from the punishment of somebody who's committed harm or violence right the knowledge that somebody who's committed harm or violence is now themselves being harmed and having violence imposed upon them right which is a which if we break it down by like that is is quite a yeah a base and in some ways i think inhuman um uh or de certainly dehumanizing uh impulse and so she goes on to say that um, they also hope that prison will send a warning message to other officers that they cannot get away with murder. But of course, that's not how policing works. If we want black people or anybody to be safe from police violence, then we must first be clear about one thing. Prison is not justice. It is punishment. And contrary to popular belief, sending more cops to prison may not make other black people safe. Right? And and, the, and if we think about the fact that our prison population has more than doubled in the last uh, 30 years, as I keep saying all the time to everyone who, anyone who will listen, um, but we haven't seen a commensurate improvement in public safety. We haven't seen a commensurate uh, reduction in harm and violence within our society. Right? So it's quite clear that prison is not a deterrent. And, and if you needed more evidence of that, you know, just look at reoffending rates in this country, right? The extent to which people who've been already incarcerated um, are far more likely to end up being incarcerated again, more likely than people who have not been incarcerated, right? So the evidence suggests the opposite of the logic of our police and prison system. And so I think that there is therefore, why should we therefore expect something different when it comes to the police, right? If if prison is not a deterrent for ordinary people, why would why would prison be a deterrent for the police, right? So there are two things here. There's a kind of quite a material argument for not incarcerating police officers, that it's not going to <clears throat> provide the kinds of outcomes that we want, right? Which is a reduction in police killings. But there's also, of course, a moral argument as well, right? The idea that actually prisons are not justice um, and that um, uh, committing, you know, being in the knowledge that somebody, the person who's committed harm or violence is now being harmed themselves. It should not, in a, on a, in a moral sense, be how we conceptualize justice, according to uh, Derek Pennell and, and me. Okay. Um, cop convictions are increasing, um, but cop killings remain consistent. Um, and as I've written before, as she's written before, police have killed about 14,000 people in the last 13 years in the United States, but only about 20 officers have been convicted um, of murder or manslaughter charges, an all time high. On average, police officers kill about 20 black people each year in Texas alone and over 200 every year nationwide. Right? Prison time certainly punishes some people for past behaviour, but the US Supreme Court grants police so much legal protection for violent behaviour that most of the killings are legal, constitutional and unexamined. Um, and if we, if, so if we think about this in the, in the UK context, um, on average in the UK, um, one person a week um, dies at the hands of um, has died at the hands of the police since 1990. Um, yeah, I think goes up significantly if we include prisons and our border systems. And while uh, no one has um, been um, convicted of murder or manslaughter uh, for any of these uh, deaths, um, you know, over over 1,500 of them, I think that it is unlikely um, 
you know, like the United States, I think it's unlikely that um, that would be the kind of deterrence, that would be the kind of change that is necessary in order to improve um, on the kind of, on the issue of police brutality and police violence. Um, and I guess I've kind of partly left this until the end because this is obviously the extreme end of police violence. And I don't want people to kind of categorize or think of police violence in this, in this extremity of when they kill someone. Right? because most people's experience of policing is is not being killed of course right it's being harassed or incarcerated um uh, or you know arrested or detained and those types of things and i think we should understand policing as being a continuum from from death all the way to um the humiliation of harassment right um and understand those things as being connected to each other um rather than um, us having to deal with this 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 murder this killing thing um, and all the rest of it all kind of is kind of, is kind of okay right it's, it's just bad when they kill someone um, but as I said as I was saying um, yeah we have we have a not as pronounced a problem but certainly a very significant problem here in Britain as as as, as I've said and I can send people statistics on this if they want to I know the Institute of Race Relations does good uh, record keeping of this as well as an organisation called Inquest um, but as I mentioned. These kinds of reforms I would describe, or the reform, well, these kinds a reform that um, would lead to more police officers being uh, tried under murder, tried um, uh, for manslaughter, and then potentially being incarcerated would not be an abolitionist reform. It would be a reformist reform because it would be, a, of course, a reform which empowers the very system which le led to that person committing um, this murder in the first place. It further legitimizes and further rationalizes that, that very same system. Ahina, go ahead. In that space, a lot of work that's been done here, um, I think some well-meaning work around, you know, community scrutiny and body-worn video, and, and I do think some of it is just genuinely well-meaning. Then you've got the CRED report that's obviously included some of that in there. Would you say everything in the space of accountability and transparency are still non-abolitionist reforms? Uh, yes, I would say I would say so. And, yeah, I'm not saying that the people who, who are proposing non-abolitionist reforms are um, are, are malevolent, right? Are doing it because yeah, they want to oppress people, or they want they 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 said, "Ha, huh, we've got this really institutionally racist, violent institution. Let's try and legitimise it more, so we can get away with hurting people." I, I don't think that's the case at all. I think that yeah, I think there is, and and of course, because a lot of non-abolitionist reforms don't come from the police, right? They come from communities who generally want to live safer existences, right? Um, but I think the problem is that um, we that they they've unfortunately not. Um, uh, brought about the changes that are necessary. Um, but yes, I would say that all attempts at accountability um, are um, uh, non-abolitionist reforms, right? And although more accountability, of course, is better, yes, of course, I'd rather have a police force which is accountable than one is that is completely unaccountable and it's just like, you know, um, uh, yeah, something that we, yeah, we might associate with another country um, where there is less accountability in police and far more violence that is not going to get us closer to a world in which police violence um, uh, can be ended, right? It's not gonna get us any closer to that. Um, in fact, it's going to reinforce that system by providing it with greater legitimacy, great and, and more rationality, right? Um, and I think that's what's crucial. That's what's crucial. Um, Non-abolition reforms can only get us so far. Um, and then we stop, and, and by the time we stop, that institution has far more justification, um, far more rationality than it had before we started. Go ahead, Richard. I was just, I know I 
idea that I've uh, often played with, it's, I know it's non-abolitionist, is, is actually one of the best ways to, um, to get organisational change is, is actually by impacting on their budget, on the police budget. So actually, um, if you look at the um, payouts by the Metropolitan Police, for example, have gone up and up and up. Um, and that could be a backdoor way of defunding the police effectively. We got really organised in terms of making um, massive claims against the police. Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. I, I don't know whether um, payouts are a, an abolitionist or a non-abolitionist form because they certainly are taking money away from the police and putting the putting it somewhere else. But it could also be interpreted as like a legitimising form of accountability. I don't know where I sit with that. Um, I know that practically in the work that I've done. I have supported a lot of people to get money from the police after they've been beaten up badly. Um, and I will probably continue to do that because they generally beat up poor people and poor people need money and they should get it from the police. Um, uh, B, go ahead. Yeah, it was just a comment really, like I watched quite a bit of the George Floyd trial and one of the key witnesses after having witnessed the murder of George Floyd called the police on the police. And it kind of like really, I don't, yeah, I, I guess it's like legitimizing the powers, but also it really kind of like, yeah, confused, but also, yeah, I guess it kind of, it's legitimizing their powers, but also critiquing at the same time, but then you're using that channel. And I guess like in, in the here and now, like what, because that actually kind of solidified and strengthened his witness statement because he was not shown to be this abolitionist or anti-police and that, that, and reading articles about it, that kind of strengthened it. But in the kind of here and now, what channels are there for, for people? Because that's like the go-to, isn't it? Even though you know, you've just seen the, what they do. So yeah, it just kind of really took me back and I didn't really know what to make of it. Yeah, no, it's, it's a really important point. I think that partly speaks to the way in which, of course, the power of the police has become so great that, yeah, as I mentioned before, when someone's having a mental health crisis or, or you know, something like that, people would still like, oh, let's call the police, right? Um, because they're just such, we know that they're going to, they have the resources to arrive quickly and have some kind of first aid skill, probably, maybe, I guess, um, and do something about it. Um, yeah, and, but I think the other thing is that, so in answer to your question, kind of, um, I mean, there's obviously no centralised force, which, uh, or large force, which we can call upon, but as we can see, organisations like Forefront are trying to develop that kind of infrastructure in their local community. Um, where they can operate on the estate and the surrounding uh, areas, um, but obviously they don't have the, they don't have like vehicles and stuff to just be like skirt, you know, to wherever they need to go. Um, I think the next hand was Hina, and then Richard, I think. Yeah. So just again, in terms of sort of the space around accountability, um, again, like I said, I think it's really well-meaning. There's some really great people in the community, like like um, says Holmes Lewis in Croydon does loads of stuff around like helping the police understand stop and search better and training them. I guess my worry is, sorry, people keep ringing me at work. Uh, I guess what my worry is, is by strengthening the account, the system of accountability and transparency and, um, um, and procedural justice, are we not perpetuating the argument that it's just a few bad apples? I mean, I know the rest of the sentences, it spoils the whole crop, but is that by putting in real genuine work into accountability and transparency because that stuff feels more immediate right it is a lot easier for us to argue for community scrutiny panels and body-worn video um and you know weeding out bad cops than it is for us to say look the entire framework's flawed but in that space are we not actually sort of 
harming the abolitionist movement because what you're doing is perpetuating the argument that if you just fix the issues that are within it's not the structure that's the problem but then if that's the case what do you do around sort of again like those well-meaning non-abolitionist reforms yeah i think you're completely right that's why those things are considered on our little chart of knowledge um to be non-abolitionist reforms um and i think that um but i, th I think I think for campaigners, it's difficult because if you, if someone's been beaten up by the police and um, they're like, right, I want to take a case against these cops who beat me up and I can get some money out of this, we're, we're going to like alienate the entire community for like, no, 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 actually we should transform them. Blah, 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 blah. No, like you have to like go to where people are at, right? Go to where people are at, work with them. And then we learn through struggle, right? So when um, people like Marcy Rigg, for instance, whose uh, brother died in Brixton Police Station in 2008, first started campaigning, she was not, she wasn't really engaging with the ideas of abolitionism. But through the campaign that she did and the work that she did with people who did have that kind of politics, through those struggles, she learns that kind of politics, right? And we can talk about a lot of other families and people in the community who, who learn through those kinds of struggles. And, it, and if, yeah, people who are doing that work were like such purists in their radical politics, like, oh, no, we couldn't possibly work with these people because they don't have the, they're proposing non-abolitionist reforms, then we would just be dickheads for a start. But also, we wouldn't get any work done, would we, right? You have to go to where people are at and learn from each other in struggle. Um, and also, what's crucial from that, from that as well is that, of course, you know, it wasn't just her that learned from these activists. These activists, of course, learned enormous amounts from Marcia Rigg and the work that she had to do and, and people like her have had to do in battling the justice system and experiencing um, these instances of police violence and the work that she has done. So it's this, this way that we all learn um, through struggle together, which I think is really, really crucial. Um, so yeah, no purities. I think it's pure under capitalism. Richard Vincemina. Yeah, you you kind of made the point I was gonna that it isn't it isn't one or the other. Yeah, I mean we just we need to be pragmatic here and and just use a variety of strategies so long as so long as the strategy isn't undermining our own kind of ideological position completely. Um, you know, then fine. The, the other thing I I just want to mention the vacuum theory of policing here because it, it's normally used around private policing to suggest that that as um, as as kind of gaps open up so police get sucked into into these needs yeah to meet these needs but i, I guess i it made me, what you were saying made me think of it because actually i'm not sure the police are always that happy being being made to deal with someone who's having a, a mental health app a critical mental health episode or you know and yet it's so the other side of it is the way that all of these other services and functions have actually disappeared or been withdrawn or, you know, and so the police are being left with inappropriate training, inappropriate powers um, to deal with the situation. So. Yeah, no, you're completely right. And I mean, another good example of that is more peace in schools. So if there's a playground scrap, um, we call the police in, right? When usually you'd have a teacher do this because it's a child. Um, and of course, yeah, we're seeing more and more um, police being uh, brought into these types of things. And yeah, really great groups like um, uh, Northern Police Monitoring Projects and Kids of Colour in the Greater Manchester area are um, doing a lot of great campaigning and research around this if people are interested. Um, Samina and then Hina. I was just thinking about the model of having a police force and the power and how we use it as a model in society. So we're, if we were looking at 
say the institution of education and and i'm i'm thinking about a recent example that happened in on our tgc where a student had a dbs record and there was something that she didn't declare and it was actually something to do with dv but because she said it, i just think it was a tick box exercise um she was actually thrown off the course and so the university had the power to say you did you didn't you weren't apologetic you didn't say anything to us therefore we're taking you off the course so this model of power and control and 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 we're using it as an institution another example of why we're institutionally racist uh, and you know she, of course she happened to be a black student um but more black people are being criminalized because of things like dv and like all the other stuff that you said and so this spreading this kind of spider network cobweb that we are using willy-nilly and as an institution we're abusing that so by acknowledging that power of of policing if we don't do anything about it it just keeps going on doesn't it so where do we say enough it was just yeah. a comment i don't know what the solution is um yeah no I, no I think you're completely right and i think well one of the solutions which we're seeing already in our universities is non-compliance right we're not going to comply with prevents we're not going to comply with the hostile environment policy um there's big campaigns called cops off campus where we're just like well no actually we're not going to have police on our campus thank you very much um and these are we're not going to comply with these attempts to um incorporate the border regime and policing um, into our everyday um uh, teaching practices um uh, go ahead Ina. yeah i was just going to say i think it's I think it's so important and critical like as students to be able to test those parameters. I guess it's hard if you're part of institutions because you still kind of need to pay the bills and get paid and not get fired. Um, but I think that that's where sort of maybe that's what drives you to sort of look at non-abolitionist reform. I've sent, I posted an article in the comment chat, which I thought was really interesting. And it was the former chief, the now former chief constable of Liverpool um, who made an argument that say you need to tackle poverty and equality. And somebody sent it to me and isn't this just defunding the police? And I just think it's really interesting that the point you made earlier, Adam, is you don't need to use the language of abolition and the language of defunding the police in a setting that it doesn't work. I, I engage with police officers quite a lot and I've had officers say to me, look, I'd rather have 50 social workers than 20 cops. And I, th and I think that's really interesting. The police are, I think, um, I think maybe Rich made the argument earlier, which is the police don't want to deal with mental health calls. They don't want to deal with homelessness. They don't want to deal with low level drugs and public health. And What's really interesting is sometimes I think the biggest advocates for the argument is the police, because police routinely say we don't want to be social workers. And I think if you can have that discussion in that sense, it can resonate a bit better, which I think sort of like words like abolition and defund just terrifies people or even anti-racism. It's just like, oh, well, that's so political, especially if you're trying to speak to an institution. But I just think that that's been helpful for me in trying to get the message across in sort of parameters. So if that's helpful for anyone else in your own institutions, I think when you really decouple the arguments and go, well, what is it that we're trying to achieve? We're trying to say, oh, we want to deal with prevention, you know, Cops agree that that's quite, well, most cops agree that, well, yeah, we'd rather not do it at all. Um, so I just think that there's, some, there's an interesting argument about how we use language. I think as a student and on campus, it is a bit easier because you have that sort of intellectual capacity to sort of like really test the boundaries. I guess it is harder for professionals to be like, I don't know if I can say this in the workplace, but there are ways that you can sort of pull out the argument. But I, I found it really interesting that police are making this argument. They obviously just won't say, like defund the police or take money off us uh, but i thought that article was just quite a helpful um way of like how do you translate it in that sort of guardian style language yeah no yeah i think yeah i think you're right i think you're right um uh yeah 
Any other thoughts? Oh, Thomas, I see you've unmuted yourself. Does that mean you're... Uh, yeah, I just wanted to ask about the more insidious question of uh, undercover police. Mm, and mm. How do you deal with that? In, in all, in, this, might, this might be an, an entirely different discussion, right? But I know that, um, like, I attended, I've attended a few protests um, in East Anglia and in, in London that we later found out were actually filmed covertly by the police, right? And I've wondered about that, particularly as someone who's not a citizen and is always aware of this policing infrastructure vis-a-vis -vis immigration for the South, right? And the place yeah. where I come from in particular. So like, how do we talk about that? That might be another course or <laughs> chapter is the presence because the, the body of police in uniform is visible. Yeah, yeah. No, I think it's yeah. I think it's I think it's really crucial. And so um, one of the the organisation I work with, which I mentioned before, the monitoring group, um, the two people who kind of have who pioneered it. One was part of set up the Southall monitoring projects in West London, and the other um, set up the um, Boardwater Farm Defence campaign. Um, and Suresh Grove and Stafford Scott and Suresh then helped was one of the coordinators of the Stephen Lawrence campaign. So he was being monitored by the police and all of these things, as well as the the um, the Tottenham Three defence campaign, the Boardwater Farm defence campaign were also being infiltrated and monitored um, by um, spy cops. And when um, this guy Peter Francis, whose undercover name was Peter Black, blew the whistle um, on these um, on these other undercover operations, um, uh, uh, we became part of this new kind of spy cops kind of network of activists, which brought together not just anti-racist campaigners that we that, that like the groups that we were a part of, but also environmental campaigners and trade union uh, campaigners and and socialist groups as well. And I remember being in the room and being like, this is one of the only times I think we've actually like got all of these people in the room together, um, agreeing on something and like talking about like how to challenge state power in like a really like both material, but also quite radical way. Um, and obviously the inquiry is going on at the as we speak and we're seeing all of these horrendous revelations and, and what have you. Um, and I think it's, I think that's, the only other time I've seen such a, a uh, coalition since um, has of course been the Kill the Bill Coalition, which similarly brings together like feminist groups, environmental groups like Extension Rebellion, uh, Black Lives Matter groups, youth groups like for the Forefront Project, um, uh, a whole, and loads of trade union organizations, a whole swathe of different organizations as well. And I think that when the state is as, as violent and as such an and engaged in such an imposition on our civil liberties as that, it's it appears to be such a, a really powerful galvanizing force for people to come together in coalitions which they wouldn't necessarily ordinary ordinarily do. And so I think that the revelations that have arisen both out of these spike up things, but also from these new forms of legislation like Kill the Bill, are really fundamentally important and demonstrates the necessity of not only the ways in which these different forms of oppression are fundamentally connected to each other, but also the necessity of resistance to, be, to them to be connected as well. Is there one site or one place where we can go to get information on covert police activities that actually are now available to the public? Yeah, um, so um, let me find the website. Um, I know that, um, What's it called? I, I can post it if you like. I'll post it in the chat. Oh, oh, thanks, Richard. Thank you. Thank you. Richard's got it. Cool. Yeah, Richard will put it in the chat. But then are we tracked and traced by going to that site as well? <laughs> Mate, probably. 
I don't know. You've got, have you got VPN? I don't know. I mean, we're on Zoom. I mean, they already know, like. <laughs> okay, thank you. <laughs> Any other thoughts or questions? Oh, yeah, that's it. Spycops.co.uk. Thank you. I've just asked a question about political blackness because I think that there's something around sort of that coming back into the public debate. Now, I'm a 90s baby, so I never really sort of understood the movement. I've just been listening to the Big Nasties podcast on Flames on the Frontline, which I would recommend for people even just to encourage not like people that aren't in this discussion to listen to it. But I was just wondering, do you think that's helpful or a damaging tool, because I guess there's questions around identity, but I've never seen a movement like this in my lifetime. And I just wondering around some of those parallels to sort of like the early 70s, 80s student movement. I mean, I don't really understand what the debate around political blackness is personally, because there aren't any political black organizations really. Um, and certainly not any politically black organizations that are being run by people under 40. Um, and the people who seem to get angry about it are people in their early 20s who spend most spend a lot of time on Twitter. Um, so yes, the lang the language, but you know, shock horror, the language of radical politics in the 70s was different to the language of radical politics today. I mean, people black movements in the 1970s talked about global revolution. Today, radical black politics talks about abolition. Um, like language changes and that's fine um, and yeah in the 1970s people talked about political blackness and today the language of like black politics is different and again I think that's actually fine because um, language is organic and it changes um, and I'm not yeah I'm not I don't really get yeah it's it was super important to us in the day right it was super important and and people yeah. of my generation right I'm 52 are yeah. all kind of why are we not talking about political blackness but I find the young people don't like it right they yeah. want things to be much more nuanced and it's moved on but it was yeah. you know it meant a lot because we came together under that banner of, you know fighting oppression together and 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 achieved a lot yeah but, yeah no I agree but it, it's had its day maybe yeah, and I mean, yeah, people rallied under the banner of revolution. And this Saturday, when people are protesting, you're probably not going to see many banners that say revolution and lots that say abolition. But you know what? I think that's fine. Um, um, yeah, I think that's fine. Um, Nathaniel, you've got a hand as well. So, um, I think I lost my thought there, but I think looking at political blackness or the under, well, I'm 30, for like reference, um, and just like, to have the understanding of like growing up in the idea of no political blackness is bad and like we can't be that because actually I'm black, mixed race, rare, rare, you can't like adopt my thing. But then I think something that's really helpful for me in I guess understanding or humanizing it as a concept was reading a um, an essay from Lady Phil that's in Sister, which is a apology from queer Caribbean women, and. I read that at the same time as I read an article by my friend denouncing political blackness at Black Pride. Um, so it was, it was this really interesting contrast of seeing Ladyfield saying, actually, no, I will always keep this because of what it meant means to us. And like, I guess the new, the new wave of attendees being like, actually, no, we don't want this anymore. Um, but it feels like there wasn't a conversation between the two to understand why it was there. Um, so I guess in short, it's that, you know, we need to just read more. Um, or like absorb information in ways so we can understand stuff. But um, yeah, I don't even. <laughs> I think that was all I wanted to say. I don't think that was a question. <laughs> no, I think I think it's important. Yeah, it's clearly like Maggie was saying. It's a, it's a generational difference, and yeah, I think it's fine. I think it's fine. Um, I know some people are like offended by it. I'm not offended by it because I mean, I mean, uh, how can I be offended by a political movement that means 
I can actually walk freely on the streets without being like brutalized. How can like, like I owe so much to that movement that I struggle to consider it to be offensive, even if it's not the political language that I necessarily use myself, if that makes sense. Um, do you know, like, I don't know, like, I mean, I, I wouldn't be, want to be called like a Negro, right? But like the Negro workers associations that existed across the Caribbean were fundamental to like independence in the Caribbean, right? Which came, which came eventually, right? So I'm not going to use that language. I'm also not going to be like, oh, I hate your movement because you use the word Negro. No, that's just the language that people use in the 1930s in the Caribbean. Like, it's fine. Like, is what language changes. It's cool. No, um, Rich, I don't know if that's an old hand or a new hand. Old hand. Sorry, yeah. it's a new hand. New hand. No, it's fine, mate. It's fine. <laughs> um, it just, uh, I was thinking, I, I wrote a paper, I'm trying to think, back in 2017, which I just thought, uh, it was just, it was a, a summer where there was a moment where it felt as though there were a whole series of crises hitting the Met. And, and for a moment, I allowed myself the thought that, you know, that there may be some massive transformation here. Sure enough, it, things rolled on, the crises disappeared. Um, and, it, and I wrote a paper basically saying how these things, like spy cops, we, we mustn't think that these are aberrations. Yeah? They're, they're actually kind of windows into normal practice where we can actually momentarily, you know, the mask slips and we can we get a glimpse of what policing's really about. Yeah. Um, but actually we allow quite often, well, we, I mean, the media frame these as, you know, aberrations as the, the, this, uh, bad apples is the typical one, but actually uh, there's a whole set of other framing mechanisms, including the institution, you know, um, but we mustn't, we must really kind of hang on to the idea that this is showing us that actually policing is always about these things yeah, and it will always, um, result in racism and yeah hence why it's institutional structural yeah. and that's why abolition is a must okay any other thoughts or questions <laughs> no okay well um i guess we've come to the end i've actually enjoyed it it's been great it's been lovely um um uh, so the Google Doc will remain, will remain, um, and there is this, uh, so the Google folder will remain, and there's a document inside it. Please do, if there are topics and things that we've talked about in passing that you'd like to read more about, I'll, I will check it. Um, so write, you know, some subheadings, and I can put readings, and I can upload um, uh, documents and stuff into the folder as well. Um, if you've got any questions, you should all have my email, right? Um, I hope you do. Um, you've all got my email. Don't hesitate to email me if you've got further questions, thoughts, ideas, all of those things. Um, don't hesitate to do that at all. Um, but yeah, my email will disappear in September because I'm moving to Queen Mary's. Um, but um, Adam, I'm gutted that you're leaving us. That's the first I've heard that we're losing you. I mean, congratulations. That's fantastic oh, thanks, news man. for you. But yeah, I know it's um, um uh, yeah, no, it's one of those things. I've got well, it's a permanent job, my first permanent job. Hooray! Um, so yeah, permanency. That's what we all want. Wage labour forever. Yeah. Um, so that's what I'm getting. Um, <laughs> and plus, it's a, a short commute from my house, which is also nice. Um, so yeah. So but yes. So until September, that that email address is alive. So um, please do email me if you've got further questions, thoughts, ideas, 
musings. Um, and apart from that, enjoy your weekends. Hope you have a great weekend. Do something nice. Get, get a glimmer of sunshine. Um, and um, yeah. Really interesting. Thank you, Adam. Cool. No Thank worries you. at all. Thanks, Adam. Thank you so much. It's been brilliant. Thank you. Thanks. Oh, and um,